Good evening, Ante. It's dark. I think it never was as dark as it is now. The first recording where we are really in the night. Um, how do you uh, experience the shift? How does the shift to wintertime? Oh yeah, definitely. You're right. This is our first nighttime recording. Um, I don't know. I like it. I like when it's more sun in the morning, but you know, it's it's not that much of a sun that we have here. You know, I just came from California. You know, I'm so obsessed. Um, some of my friends notice with these UV levels mm -hmm. because, you know, uh, once once UV levels fall below three, uh, we are not producing vitamin, vitamin D anymore. Yeah. So you can be exposed as much as you want on the sun. And so I just came from California and I checked my uv levels there and it's like five or, or six right now so these guys are living a, a different life oh, yeah. and we are here children of darkness <laughs> and clouds know, and everything yeah yeah you know when when they changed the time last sunday i instant I'm, i'm not kidding i instantly got tired it's just because the day ends earlier somehow my biochemical processes they respond to it and when it's five o'clock i'm I want to go to bed. I'm, I'm tired. I'm, I'm basically yes. done with the day. Well, just a week before, right, I could go till seven, eight. But just the fact that the day ends earlier also uh, yeah, makes your body respond in, in ways where it wants to be less active. That is so important, right? The circadian rhythm and the way it gets affected by these changes. It's both the evening light and the morning light. I'm not an expert on that, but I really enjoyed once I listened to Andrew Huberman and he mentioned the fact, you know, this early light in the morning within the first half an hour, hour when you wake up yeah. and this kind of adrenaline kick that it gives you. And if you don't get it early in the morning, it cannot be made up later in the day and also in the evening as well. So, I mean, light affects us so deeply. And I know I don't feel it right now still, but I will start feeling it in January and February. I, I will feel the sluggishness. And yeah. so we have to do the best to overcome that over here in Michigan. Yeah, I hope at least that we have a good winter this time and that there's a lot of snow for a longer season or for a longer period because the reflection of the light on the snow really contributes to, even though you know, it doesn't increase the, the V levels, but it does uh, in, increase the general atmospheric vibe that surrounds you. And it, it just does make you uh, feel a bit more alive. So that is very interesting, right? Because last year, I, I think we actually talked about this in one of our early episodes that I did not ski at all last winter. And it would be an interesting comparison to note, how do I feel in during a winter when I have opportunities to do some cross-country skiing around here and when not? I mean, that would be an interesting right. comparison just to note in terms of consciousness and just sluggishness and, and life energy. I know that uh, that you have been traveling. I mean, obviously, you were in California, as you mentioned now. So did you have some interesting experiences there that you want to share? Yeah, yeah. No, I was invited to present to a pastor's meeting in the Southern California Conference, which is a church organization in the L.A. area, Adventist Church Body Organization, L.A. area. It is always interesting for me. Oliver, I don't know how it is with you when you go to such meetings. I always have a huge challenge how to properly calibrate what I am talking about. You don't know the audience mm -hmm. and you have some assumptions and you don't know, is this now too superficial? Is it too much in the academic weeds? I have a hard time knowing that. And it's really confirmed, you know, I had some conversations with some pastors who for them, for whom this was, it seemed to me a little bit just, I don't know, too much 
I don't know, theoretical, what you want. And then I had another pastor, a wonderful, wonderful uh, pastor uh, by the name of Sam, who took me to the airport in the morning. And this is a guy who has a pastor, who has a couple of masters, who was doing a, a degrees, was doing a PhD in some public policy, reads and philosophy, loves philosophy since his early uh, since his teenage years, very kind of smart, uh, and I mean, and then I thought, well, you know, perhaps it was too simple for yeah, him. Yeah. So that is, and uh, just a side comment. I mean, we have such fascinating pastors. They are so different with so many different walks of life, and it is such a joy, really. What we've noted from our MapMin teaching, mm-hmm. when you miss this very, very interesting. People who have, you know, I know. I think the conference president mentioned there were some former people who used to study mathematics, and now they're pastors. There's a someone who was, I met him briefly, who was a physician for 30 years and was a business person, and now retired early, and now he's the youth director over there or in some capacity like that. And so I have a lot of these very interesting people, and I feel so enriched. It expands my horizons, yeah. and it is a, such a great privilege. It's so difficult to accommodate everybody, and I think, in a sense, it's good that we don't. You know, for both the ones that are disappointed, perhaps, that feel like disconnected with from what you're saying, I think for them it's an experience of th- there is something out there that is obviously catering to the needs of others and not not to my needs. And I think this is an important message, too, to realize your topics and what you feel comfortable with is not necessarily something that satisfy the, satisfies the needs of others. On the other hand, obviously, you're covering a spectrum that is perhaps underserved yeah, on, on the more public sphere of church talks and sermons and so on. And there there is a significant amount of people, I mean, not in the majority, but they're significant, who feel underserved, who feel not spoken to, who almost, I mean, some, some of them, if they're church members, you know, they might even consider leaving the church because they feel like their topics and what concerns them is not part of the discourse. And so a person like you addressing some of these things makes them feel alive again, makes them feel, okay, there is place in the community of faith for me as well. Yeah, I think that is absolutely correct. I think we we do need to be cognizant of how we talk, you know, are we using too much too many academic terms or are we being this or that so that can always be rectified but i do believe that if we stay close to scripture speak from our heart uh, connected to some practical issues that we have to stay true to our passions and then you know i always always think about this oliver i don't know if you think that way you know it doesn't really matter that i have to be the person who serves people if if i'm not the one well, then I won't be invited. Then invite those who will serve. Mm-hmm. And as long as people are being served, that is okay. Yeah. Right? Not everyone has to be this great public speaker and looked for public speaker. And so I feel that we need to be, of course, adaptive to the context, but also, as you say, we have to be true to our passions and our like how we think about these things. Anyway, just yeah, a yeah. thought on that. Yeah, I mean, today we we said we want to talk today and next time, right? Uh, we want to talk about productivity, the topic of productivity, but then really tailor it more down to how you have implemented techniques of productivity, how you relate to the whole concept of productivity. And then in the next episode, we will do the same um, with me and, and what I have found to work well in my life. And obviously, people have asked us, right, how 
have you in particular now in this conversation how have you been able to arrange your life in such a way that allows you to be productive and i think probably what people mean when they are interested in the way how you do that is both they look at your academic record or the way how you prepare your classes i mean i've heard so many students who said if you're coming to the seminary you need to take a, a class with your and these are serious students who really want to learn and want to dig deep and they know when they sit in your classes they they actually get quality they will find somebody who is well read who is well collected who has not just achieved important degrees i mean you got your phd at the university of chicago right did did you hmm. also study i mean i know you studied um At Helderberg College, did you also study at Stellenbosch? I did study at Stellenbosch. You yes, also studied in Stellenbosch. A, yeah. Okay. Yes. Was that a was that a specific degree that that you did there, or was that a couple masters. of courses? Masters. A master's so you, degree. Okay. So yes. well, perhaps that's a good uh, start. Perhaps you can just summarize your academic record. Um, how did you get there? I, I know that the question about productivity was not just about academic performance. It was also about lifestyle matters, right? Yes. Health, spirituality, marriage, and, and so on. Also, productivity yes. can be found in those realms of life. But obviously, your profession is that of a professor. And that might be a good starting point. How did you end up as yeah an academic, as a scholar, as somebody who is now a senior professor? Right. I, uh, thank you for asking me. Thank you for your very kind uh, comments. I, I will just give brief bullet point answers to this because this is obviously a longer story. I started studying theology, which I might have mentioned before in Croatia initially. It was, for, well, started in Yugoslavia and then <laughs> finished in, in, in Croatia because it was a, you know, the sure. breakup of Yugoslavia. Yeah. So I was there for two years and then we moved to Halderberg College in South Africa, which at that time was still affiliated with Andrews University. So I got actually an Andrews University BA degree as well as Halderberg College degree. And after that, I studied at Stellenbosch University, which is has quite a quite a good reputation. Oh yeah, it's one of the uh, leading universities actually. It is. It's very it very um, it's very noted. It has many connections with Europe. It is a great place in an absolutely picturesque Stellenbosch is such a picturesque place with all these vineyards and old colonial houses and mountains. It is just beautiful. What a beautiful place. And Stellenbosch University, Stellenbosch University at that time had two places where you could study theology. There was a seminary, which I could not join because it was in Afrikaans, mm -hmm. which is very similar to, to Dutch. It basically is Dutch, right? It's right. kind of uh, very, very similar. And and they did not have an English sort of track. So I then started studying at the Department of Religion in the university. And it was mostly a European type degree where you write your master thesis. And I think you have done something similar, right? And it's quite extensive. I think I don't remember the page numbers. I think it's like 180 or 170. So almost like a dissertation size. It might have been less. I don't remember exactly now. But I was there and it was quite funny. And I don't know if you have the same things in the Netherlands. But there basically, like when you get 75%, you're a superstar. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is, this is A. And You know, when if you get 80, wow, I mean, you are the greatest, the greatest, I don't know, you know, grade ever given out in the department. So it's a very different type of, of grading. So, no, Stellenbosch was a great experience. And then after that, I then ended up 
at the University of Chicago. Did in you the apply US. there, or was there a research group that um, you entered? Uh, how did that go? I applied. I had just applied to the department. They, I think, knew of Helderberg College because other people went through that institution. You certainly know the Klingbeils. They were Martin Klingbeil and Gerald Klingbeil, or Gerald Klingbeil. Yep. They were ahead a couple of years of me. There was another of my friend was there as well, who now is teaching, Bogdan Skur, who is teaching at Washington Adventist University. So there was kind of a, perhaps not a well Thornton part, but a path, but there were people who were, so they knew about us. They knew about Helleberg College. And they accepted me and they, you know, we had some classes, we had some seminars, we had some meetings, but mostly it was a research-based MA degree. Yeah. Well, good. Thanks for kind of summarizing that route. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there's some really interesting stories because it's like a global travel story too, from from Europe to South Africa, from South Africa to the United States, Chicago, Midwest America, Barron Springs. Um, when I'm approaching this topic of productivity, you know, when when we were asked whether we could tackle that. I felt a little bit uncomfortable. It's it's almost that I feel my life in my life I try to resist performance enhancement, right? I'm I'm a mountain climber. I'm a I'm a devout uh, alpinist, and for me, I'm when I'm climbing, I climb the alpine style. So alpine style means you are not allowed to use sort of the performance enhancements uh, that are of technical and industrial nature. So no cable gondolas, right? No no huts. Um, But really, from valley to top to valley, you carry all your own stuff. And and that ov obviously does not allow you to, to perform at your best, right? You're never the fastest. You're And this kind of concept of the alpine style is very much a concept that I've lived in other areas of life, be that academia, be that sports, um, be that also my social life, think about my, my marriage. And so this obsession with performance enhancement, be that in professional sports, but it, be that also in, in academia, in the sciences, in computer sciences and stuff like that, makes me always a little bit uncomfortable, particularly if we consider like the conversation we had, had with Andrew Tompkins. It almost seems to compete with resonance or diminishes resonance. So as we right. continue conversation, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious how you feel about when people yes. say, man, Ante, you are such a performant professor or you, you have achieved so much. How do you relate to that, both from a conceptual perspective as well as from an emotional perspective? Well, thank you for the question. I, um, what I would say is that I am not uh, wedded to this term productivity. Uh, for me, how we organize our lives and how I try to organize my life is really about mindfulness, about, about my limits, about my values, about what matters to me. It is the realization that I cannot say yes to everything. I have to say no to a lot of things. So what is the algorithmic processing or what is the thinking? What is the criteria based on which I say no to things? And for me to be able to say no, I need to be able to say yes. So it's kind of mindfulness about what I would like my life to be, what are my priorities and my values. And I, I really resonate and agree with your 
reservations about productivity. As a matter of fact, there has been a slew of anti-productivity literature in recent years. I'm thinking, for instance, of the journalist Anne Helen Peterson, Peterson, who wrote a number of excellent articles about you know the kind of the critique of productivity culture, this mm-hmm. obsession about optimization. And, and as far as I and I got this from someone else, but I, but I think that base, two basic tracks of critique. One is one track comes from this. It's kind of left side critique, and it's kind of informed by a little bit kind of a Marxist take. This yeah, idea yeah, yeah. that capitalism is exploitative, and those who uh, with capital exploit the proletariat, and it is their interest to squeeze out as much productivity as possible to, um, to increase their income benefit and, and th- things like that. So it's basically productivity in, in such contexts and critical theory. Um, explores this quite a bit, um, sees productivity as a mechanism of exploitation. So they have that, that critique. And the other critique is, comes from a Weberian idea of the Protestant work ethic, mm-hmm. this idea that, you know, we really, the more you work, the more authentic you are, this kind of almost obsession, or oh, I work more than you, or you work 40 hours, or I, I work 60 hours, so I'm a better person. So almost the wedding identity to the amount of hours that we do. And, and I think it's also a variation, I won't go into this, but kind of a postmodern critical theory that deconstructs these old notions of modernist notions of, of productivity. So I am very sensitive to, to these things and we should take them into consideration, except that's not what I mean by productivity, first of all, and perhaps I can yeah. say more about that. But, or, and secondly, I'm not wedded to the term at all. So when you say you're not wedded to the term at all, I assume you have alternative terms that you prefer when talking about this realm. Yeah, I said, well, this is this is how I um, like organize my life. This is these are these strategies. I'm not thinking about. I don't have to call it productivity, because I think when you think about productivity, um, and I also got this from someone else, um, and it is this idea that. Productivity has this input A and output mm-hmm. B. And in the midst, there's this kind of function that determines what the output is going to be. So I think in a typical, when it's exploitative, oh, let, let's, let's have more work, right? That's the input, more hours, so that we can squeeze out more output from our workers, right? That's one way of thinking about this. And so people are worried, worried about about kind of that kind of thinking. But for me, when, you th- when I think about the productivity is to think about the function. If I change the function, which for me the function is how I do things, how I organize things, how I plan things, what are my methods of working, what are my tools? So let's say, let me give you an example. So with a certain input A, I have an output of B, but if I change my function, I can have this output B completed in two hours instead of three hours. Oh, that's awesome, right? So let's then give even more input. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. So we can have more output. But I think, and I don't think that way, right? I think, no, 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 let, let, wait a minute. I have, I have, instead of three hours, I've taken two hours. Now I want to reclaim that hour for myself. It's not necessarily working more. And one of the one way in which this is kind of manifested in my life, and we might have talked about this before, is that I believe in a fixed productivity schedule, right? I am allocating every week a certain number of hours. Uh, and, and so I will work for 
a certain amount, I will leave this for myself, right? This is how much I work. And then I think from there, like what needs to happen for me to work this amount of hours? So can, how can I adapt my function? How can I automatize my processes? How can I be more efficient so that I can, within that constraint, do what I need to do? What things do I have to say no to? How, do, how can I change my processes? Because I cannot do more hours, as we might have talked before, because if I do more hours, then I don't have time for A, B, C, and D. And those are values in my life. I'm not going to mm -hmm. sacrifice mm -hmm. them. So I think that this kind of part then of mindfulness, this is one, whether you call it productivity or call it organization, is to have a meta perspective on your life. Some sort of awareness, what matters to you. Now, play matters, family matters, community matters, service matters, teaching, research, exercise, fun, rest, whatever it is. And then these are the constraints. And in the past, I would just work like, like I don't know, to some unseemly hours. And it was totally out of balance. And then I realized I'm not going to do that. Yeah. So since I restricted that, I restricted, so my output is, is restricted to this time frame. So how can I work so that I have that balance? It's not about working more. It's not about being a slave. It is actually to living a life according to my priorities and values. So my question then is, being a father and a husband as well, I obviously, as most of us, all of us will understand we have these different sectors in life in which we have to perform, let's say, in which we have to live or, or to term it differently, in which we have to live responsibly. So what you're describing sounds to me or could be at this moment is received as basically a multi-aspectual industrialization of your life. So when you speak about productivity, A input, B output, And for you, this is not something that is to be organized in a way that it admits that the critique on, of, of Marx or the critique on the Protestant work ethic applies to you. But then still, I feel like, well, it does apply or it could still apply because now you're, as, uh, now you're approaching the other aspects of your life, for example, family, also in a performant way or perhaps your spiritual development in a performant way or perhaps the gardening that, that you want to do in a performant way or the sport that you do aside of your academic work in a performant way so is it just basically hiding the the industrialization by just saying that you do many other things as well but in fact then you do many other things in an industrialized productivity focused way so i'm, I'm a little confused about that Perhaps you yeah, can clarify. Let me try to explain. I, I'm, I'm not sure if, if that is what's happening, right? I think I have these different things in my life, and they are, require time and attention. So to be with my wife, to be with my, my daughter, do I have to be formally scheduled? No, I don't have to schedule it formally. You can be spontaneous, but I know what you need. You need time, and you need to be present. If you're with them and you're texting all the time, That's not quality time. If you're totally present, but you're there for three minutes out of the whole week, that's not going to work. So there's a sense, kind of sense that, well, no, I, I, I need time and attention when I'm going to do that. 
And this comes from an insight, one of these early books on productivity, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen mm -hmm. Covey, which was a kind of a bestseller at that time. And one thing that I've learned from him is that he has this kind of classification of important urgent things and unimportant urgent things. And some things are so unimportant, but they're urgent. No, I need to have this response from you for this, I don't know, committee. Yeah, but it's really not that important, but it's urgent. And then you have urgent, important things and not urgent, important things. It is that, it is those non-urgent, important things that if you're not mindful of them, you will not simply slide into doing them. They will be mm -hmm. squeezed out. These urgent things would always clamor for your attention. Oh, I can always tweak my, I, I have to teach tomorrow, I can tweak my presentation another hour. Or I can, I can really work some more on this book, or I can do that. And, and these, these important things, not urgent, will not protest, they will be silent, but then just not going to happen. Yeah. They're not yeah. going to happen they're not, yeah. because they're going to be clamored out. So, and that is one way for me is when I then looked at these things and I'm very flexible. One, it's not about rigidity. This is, people have to understand that. I, it's not like rigidity in that sense, but it is an awareness that I need to spend some significant quality time on this or that if that really matters to me in my life. If it doesn't matter, then mm -hmm. forget about it. And so, again, it is not industrialization. It is simply derecognition, as I mentioned, that, that things that matter to you require time and attention, and that very often they're going to be squeezed out if you don't bring a certain yeah. level of mindfulness to pursuing them. Now, how yeah. you do it and how much you allocate, and whether one week you do one hour, the next week you do three hours, that's all flexible. It's all about kind of Bruce Lee, the greatest philosopher, like having mind like water kind of approach. Mm -hmm. You're very adaptable, but they still need time and attention. So that is only what I have in mind here. That's funny. So I, I think the term that you now use in a very intuitive way as a replacement of perhaps the term performance or the term industrialization to invite us better into how you frame your organization or your structure or your strategy around your life would be presence. You, you have used the term a couple of times now, presence, as well as I think matter, what matters to you, you used a couple of times, perhaps another word would be meaning, what is meaningful to you. So basically, what you're saying then is all the strategies and skills, all the tools that you are using in your life are there to be more present in the different realms of life. It's not about performance, it's actually about presence, which then would nicely connect actually with our conversation on uh, on Hartmut Rosa, right, uh, on, on mm -hmm. resonance. So basically a way to receive the gift of life in a way that allows you to see life as a gift, right, and not just as a Uh, a factory, right? That uh, requires a lot of output. Mm -hmm. That's that's beautiful. I mean, that that makes sense to me. So, mm -hmm. uh, skills, structure, strategy, performance tools as a way to be more present in life, not as a way to be a slave of productivity. Is that a yes. way how how you could frame it? I think so. Right? They uh, so what you call as presence, and I've then kind of uh, explaining a bit more by using the idea of attention, mm -hmm. uh, attention and time. I think this is just a common sense in life that anything that you do requires some reckoning, requires some time investment. Again, be it sport or any craft that you learn, 
it's just how it is. Yeah. And so for me, I'm approaching this in a, a concept that I mentioned before in one of our early episodes. This idea is very important to me, is this idea of craftsmanship, this idea of getting better at something through practice. There are many, many domains of life in which I'm getting better through practice. I think we talked about before me, my love for making Napolitana, pizza Napolitana. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I initially it was crazy, but then I'm doing it and i uh, tweaking my recipe and, you know, the, the flopping, you know, the kind of the, the dough and uh, 48 hours or 24 hours in the fridge or this or that or this or that. I became better at it. Yeah. And it seems to me that why wouldn't I, this this approach that is so intuitive, so deeply connected to all domains of life, from farming to being an alpinist, to skiing, to teaching, to learning, to playing, everything, why wouldn't I bring that level of reckoning, which includes time and attention, and then also certain kind of evaluative mindfulness to what I'm doing when it comes to my work and planning. Why wouldn't planning and how I conduct my life fall under the same universal principles of how we are being formed in, in different skills in life? So that is just my yeah. approach that I bring to the table. I love your example of the Neapolitana uh, <laughs> pizza. You, you know, it's like your way. This is Ante. This is Ante has his best. It's his fist raised against... Uh, you know, the uh, enslavement of the industrialization in the modern era. So this is no, I am spending time on this. Great, great example. I love it. I I think it shows also that you need to be, I assume you need to be resistant to the social recognition and that is triggered by performance. I think that that's one of the challenges that most, if not all of us have, namely, if you are performing in your profession, particularly in your profession, profession, if you're performing well, you will climb up the ladder of social hierarchy. And that can become a drug that, that distorts your attempt to be more present in life, right? So, man, did you Very hear much. that lecture of, of Ante? This was so deep, it was Very so much. amazing. So let's invite him. Let, let's him, let listen more often to him. And there goes your Neapolitana pizza, right? Um, Very much. How, how do you do this? How, how were you able, at, perhaps not just how do you do this, but at what moment in life did you feel like, okay, I actually need to master the way how performance is related to the construction of social hierarchy? Oh, beautiful. This is such an important question. And I had, I have, to be honest, I had to learn this. It didn't come easy to me. It didn't come naturally to me. I think, remember last time when we talked to Andrew, when we talked about resonance, and we talked about modernity and what characterizes modernity in modern societies, Rosa makes this excellent point that what very much happens in modern societies is this drive towards resource acquisition. Everything becomes a resource. Everything, you know, you have to be more and more and more a better school to be able to do this, to be able to do that. And it seems to me that uh, sometimes one can approach life in, in our context It's academic success in other context might be something, it's something different, where everything becomes another resource and you become part of the rat game. And I have to say that as an earlier, as a younger professor early in life, 
I would, you know, the comparison game would certainly be a game that I would play. Well, how is it? How many, you know, I mean, I wish I could have achieved this. I mean, this person has been recognized in this way. And, and this person has achieved, published these many books or these many articles. And these kind of feelings are horrible feelings. They are so over, laid over with so many layers of shame and guilt and dissatisfaction. And I had to awaken that really a spiritual this it's a spiritual discipline a cognitive discipline to simply refuse to play that game yeah. that that is not what matters in life my life my identity is not being propped up or my identity does not depend that i'm being recognized by my institution or that i achieve something more you know we all with different we work with different speeds we have different resources we are placed in different situations so i think that that has to be a very important step towards this whole approach to life so rather than having uh, comparison based or success based or resource acquisition based approach to life i have an approach um, values based approach to life okay these are the 10 things that i want to be in life if if mm -hmm. i could this is the 10 values that really really matter to me and these are the three four five domains of of my life like craft and community relationships constitution or wholeness in my life and so for me i find satisfaction now with being aligned with, with what really matters to me yeah. living an essentialist lifestyle that simply recognizes that almost everything in life is insignificant and unimportant and be focused on you know, god's love on relationships and friendships and then within this fixed productivity that i have achieve as much as i can and if i don't i don't it's okay if this were a sermon Ante. I would now interrupt your speech regularly, say, amen, amen, preach it, brother, <laughs> preach it, brother. Uh, lovely. So th thanks so much. I, I think that is really an inviting view on life or world that it's value-based, right? Then that was kind of the term that, that you used, a value-based way of living. You know, my, my wife, I'm... I, I'm, I'm not sure. My wife is, I sometimes call her St. Mary, right? Uh, so to, just to stress how sacred she is to me and how, how sacred she appears to me. Um, she, her father is an architect, right? Um, and uh, was a successful architect in Brazil, but then they immigrated because of the economic collapse that happened there. And he happened to be born in Dutch Suriname, which was a former colony of the Netherlands. So he had a Dutch passport. They immigrated to the Netherlands. Well, long story short what do you do when you finished high school many of us study what our parents have studied right so she studies architecture karen is great in mathematics uh, great in physics so she she's by far more intelligent than, than i am we often have kind of this game at home where we say she is the more intelligent one <laughs> while i'm the intellectual one right so um the way how we use our intelligence is is, is different but there's no doubt she is by far more intelligent than me. But there she is, she studies architecture and obviously she gets her good grades in the European model. It's not ace, right? Ace is only for the gods. So, but yeah. it's it's like what you're describing, 75, 80%, that's kind of the highest you can get on a constant basis. I mean, she's very disciplined, she's very organized, she's having a good control over her life. But she's studying architecture and as she studies architecture, she, re she realizes she actually doesn't like it. She doesn't want it while she is successful. 
um, everybody <laughs> would have hired her. So she she's great. She is very good in technical and drawings, understanding the statics of, of buildings. Uh, very good. But she just doesn't like it. She could have gotten a well-paid, well-recognized job in society in architecture office. In fact, she worked for a great company that built, can you believe it, like major sectors of London city. (laughs) Um, They (laughs) did parts of the financial sector in Moscow. They redid the central station at Rotterdam. So it's it's a significant, well-known company. The boss is a visiting (laughs) uh, professor at the MIT. Uh, He is an adjunct professor at the Humboldt University. So really prestigious also on the academic level. Right. And she went there in order to become an office manager. Didn't do anything Mm. with her architecture degree. But that's where she felt like, here's where I am present in life. I just love this. And this rebellion, so to say, in a sense, it's your Neapolitana pizza, right? It says, no, I'm not allowing my profession, the recognition that I'm getting to restrict myself from where I feel my calling is and from where I feel... I can be present and receive the the gift of life as a gift. Um, Beautiful. Yeah, value-based. I mean, amazing. But how old were you, would you say, until you were able to live more and more according to this? Where you you would say, I think I have kind of arrived now and devoted myself now to to, to this concept of a value-based life. Listen, I would love to tell you that it was uh, 30 years ago when I was young, but that's not the case. We are talking more about a time span of the last really couple of years where I have arrived at this piece. And I think that a lot of it happened during COVID, uh, a lot of introspection and thinking about life and the brevity of life. No one on their, you know, realizing that no one on their deathbed regretted that they didn't write one more article or attended one more committee. No one has those kind of regrets. We know that regrets are of a different kind. They concern relationships, concern that you did not pursue what really matters to you. And and so this has been really, I've grown into this over, over the last couple of years in, in greater fullness, I have to yeah. say, than, than before. I mean, you know, when obviously you're not in your 20s anymore or in, in your 30s, I mean, this itself, I think, is also a general principle of life that it this can, in average, this cannot be achieved in, in a short time. I would myself also say I've started living more according to what I wanted to live when I entered the 40s, perhaps. I think we, we might exactly. have had a conversation a little bit uh, on that yes, topic. we did. We did some time ago. Yeah, yeah. with the Exodus mo- motive, right? Uh, it takes yes. forty years of relapse exactly. until you get a sense of okay, I, I, I really don't. I'm not going to be a slave anymore. So right, I'm right. I'm living right. my. But okay, Ante. So now we we have kind of in my mind we have opened now the floor to discuss structures, techniques, skills as these tools are not anymore tools to serve the idol of mammon or the idol of the social hierarchy but but really the gift of life living a value-based life that is seeking presence what are some of the skills some of the strategies that you apply in your daily life to actually allow it to be present in these different realms of life in which you want to be present right so this is a thank you for asking this this is a a huge topic and we won't be able to, i won't be able to cover everything but perhaps uh, i can talk about it in 
two different sort of categories. So I will talk a little bit about the dimensions and then as we're wrapping up this episode, I want to come to actually the elements of planning. So there are two elements mm-hmm. that I want to talk about. So I would say that there are these certain dimensions of whatever you want to call it, of mindful approach to life, or even if you want to use productivity, that are very important uh, to me. I think there's very, what people very often miss, and they often they realize that, they simply miss discipline. People simply miss the ability to carry on what they have decided to do. If you don't have discipline, you won't be able to live mindfully. Now, I don't have discipline. I certainly don't have it all the time. And so this is, again, not about perfection. It's simply a reality. The ability to do what you set out to do and to be able to pursue it is a certain kind of requirement. So I would say that it's very important for people to grow into discipline, having an identity to see themselves as disciplined people. And if they really, if their life is total chaos, or if it's completely, uh, there's no structure, there's no direction, whatever they say, I will do this, they never do it, constantly procrastinate. Well, I would suggest then, look look at these various dimensions of life that you have. You have work, you have wholeness, you have relationships. Whatever you have, you can think about these different areas of life. And pick one, one meaningful thing that is slightly challenging, but that you can pursue, that you can do on a regular basis. You might not be able to exercise every day for an, for an hour, but I'm sure you can do like 10 jumping jacks every morning. However tired you are, how, wherever you travel, you can do that. And why don't you track it? Like track these things and then hold yourself accountable. Have this accountability mirror that you are the kind of person who says, I will do this, actually does it. Mm-hmm. And suddenly things begin to change and you will become a sense of self-efficacy. And as a matter of fact, when you know what they've noticed in the military, just a side comment, is that when people nowadays are coming to the, to the military, that they don't have this, there's another term, it's not self-efficacy, it is kind of eluding me the term now. It's not self-determination, it's not self-efficacy, but the ability to actually take initiative and do things. So very early on, what, what often these officers do, they strengthen this, uh, it'll come back to me. It's, it's, an, it's a term in psychology, but they strengthen this ab- ability for people to have efficacy. Mm-hmm. And suddenly people realize, you know, they put them or clean the kitchen. Uh, but where, how? Well, figure it out. Do it. Find the mob. I don't know. Do it. Yeah. And then later on, well, you, you did a great thing with this. You got a thing with that. Trying to affirm people the ability, hey, I actually have this capacity for self-determination. We need to build this up in people. If you don't have it, it won't happen. So all these great resolutions that people have, they fall to pieces because people don't have the ability to actually do that. So a lot could be said about discipline. The second element is, I would so say... Let me ask a question about, about pro, um, yes. this, this way to have discipline. Yes. Obviously, you gave a couple of examples how you could build up discipline. But yes. what do you need in order to want discipline? So I, I feel like one of the reasons why people are not disciplined is because it's just not attractive. There are other right. things that attract your attention. Exactly. So wh- why would you want to be disciplined if you get satisfaction of other attractiveness? Uh, excellent question. I think there needs to be a moment of awakening. There needs to be a moment of awakening. Hey, I'm wasting my life. Hey, I'm not going to be around for my kids if I continue living that way. Hey, really, this kind of dead-end job does not really satisfy me. 
I'm a slob, I'm, I'm a couch potato, I, am in, I mean, I feel bad, I feel sick. There needs to be a, a desire. Now, for different people, it will come in different ways. I believe that God's grace operates in people's lives in very different ways. But, but suddenly, it happens. And if it happens, make significant steps. And I remember an example, I listened to a person, a person who was profoundly overweight, had metabolic syndrome, had, you know, diabetes, and... And the counselor told him, you know what, you know, I really feel bad. I want to change. He said, that, that has to happen in some ways. Hey, well, you know, uh, why, don't you, why don't you for the next two weeks just drink dart coke, 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 right? Which is as horrible as any coke. Mm-hmm. And well, I don't like dart coke. Well, well, try. And so after two weeks, he succeeded. Now, he's the kind of guy now who can start actually drinking diet coke. And then she told him, okay, don't change anything for the next two weeks or whatever time she gave him, I don't know. Just eat your junk food, but just take one banana, banana in the morning. Mm-hmm. And, and slowly but slowly, and one day he's going and finds some on the whatever, someone is selling some stationary bike for 20 bucks. He takes it, you know, and okay, now while I'm watching TV, I'm gonna, and he's completely obese, overweight, morbidly obese. And then he's doing it, and suddenly, after a couple of weeks or months, I don't know how long it was, he looks at the TV and something is strange. And what is strange? Things are not blurry anymore. <laughs> he actually sees better. And so he continues, continues, and finally, he, he really overcome, and he, he doesn't, didn't have diabetes anymore. So I think we have an enormous capacity uh, that needs to be some sort of awakening, and that's important. But I do believe as... as yeah. yeah. Such an awakening. Sorry, Ante, but I mean, you, you now spoke about somebody, right? Uh, did yes. you have that also? Was, was there a moment yes. in your life that forced you into, let's say, productivity? Definitely. Many moments. Many uh, Into health. I remember distinctly when I was, I told you before, I had this problem with sugar. I was totally sugar addict. I have no control with sugar. And I remember lying in bed and hearing a direct voice, beat of my conscience. I don't know what voice it was. The voice was the following. You are going to die. I, I, I freaked out. Hmm. And, and after that, immediately, by providence, I looked at this kind of called a sugar documentary by some Australian guy. It totally convinced me. It turned my life around. With this, I got sick and tired of being, well, being tired, being overworked, Sick and tired with procrastination, sick and tired with having second-rate quality producing, and that kind of led me to the... So very often, we need to fail many, many times. That's why it takes many, many, many times in order for the pressure to build in of this, I really, I'm done with this. And sometimes failing once is not enough. And so failures, therefore, it's one of my life principles, are never lost. They can be harnessed and they can be springboards for for growth very often. Okay, so discipline, right? And discipline. The, yeah. uh, the second one would be values, obviously. These things that I really want to implement, which then leads me to kind of almost like my hierarchy of things that I've... It's fluid, but like the seven, eight, nine important things in my life that I try to allocate time for and then they become a measuring stick by which I say no to other things but listen I want to do this but I don't have time for that which I say is the most important thing for me so that that and then uh, I would say wait wait, before before you continue are you conscious of your values I mean they're they're written out okay okay, so, so you explicated them they're very explicated I have a whole system I cannot share now because this is an audio I have these uh, I have these 10 values and I can 
it will tell you a little bit later when I come to planning mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, in a minute or two how I utilize them. But they're kind of written out and I have, I have like for each of them a written page or two. What it is, what it means, how would Ante look like if he really lived that way? Yeah. Right? Okay, who, who well, would good, good, be? good. Let, let, let's so touch that's on that. this in, in, in a second. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that. And then the, the most important then is actually how do we implement it? And that is the, the planning. That's actually the doing of the things. And perhaps we can talk about it, uh, about that a bit. Okay, so three things, right? Discipline? Discipline, values, uh, the planning, which is essential to the whole thing. And then obviously, these different domains of life in which the, the play, the, the, you know, the different areas in which I try to allocate time for. So that yeah. would be those, those four areas, discipline, values, planning, and these goals of life buckets or domains of living. So those would, those would be the four things that are very important to me, which I reflect on all the time. Okay, okay, good. So, okay, the, these these are your basic concepts, right? These are Dimension, your, the dimensions, dimensions of this mindfulness of living, yes. Okay, so run us through a typical day. So where, okay. where these elements start to play and, and, and uh, create a symphony, so, so to say. Okay, okay. So here's the thing, before I say this, that I have to say that, first of all, this planning, and I took this from Cal Newport, his concept of multi-scale planning. So the planning happens on several different levels. It happens on a daily level, it happens on a weekly level, and helps, it happens on a semester level. And these are kind of meaningful time periods, and each one, uh, they connect with each other, and then we'll show you why. So let me be very specific how I do this. Okay, so um, like every, se- for me, it's semester, it can be quarter, for me, it coincides, I'm an academic, so for me, this works well. I look at, at the totality of, of what's waiting for me, of, of the sort of goals that I specified before, of things I would like to write, It's not just writing, it's, just not, it's not just academics, but it's also acquiring some new so competencies. It is, I would like to visit something, I would like to learn something. And then I write it actually out, or I would like to work on this particular value. Like I would like to learn how can I become more, I don't know, let's say, let's say you know, resilient. Let's not go into this because you have different views than I have on that. But h- h- what can I learn about, what is resiliency? How can I learn about this? Um, and, and then so that I will then allocate, I will write everything out in a semester plan. And then what happens is that, so this is kind of a guiding light. By such mm-hmm. and such date, I would like to write this. I would like to complete this. So this is how these non-essential, urgent things get their hearing. And especially if there are larger things that have to be broken up. And so if I want to have this by December, like what do I need to do in September? Because I won't be able to finish this if I start two weeks before for the year end. No, no, no. So obviously I have to buy by the end of September, I have to do this, approximately October, November. Well, I go to the conference there, I present there. Okay, so I won't have time during this period. I'm doing MapMin teaching. Okay, okay, for all of these many weeks, I have actually about nine to 10 weeks. How do I apportion the time approximately? And then hold myself accountable. And then what I do then is every, every week, usually on a Sunday morning, I sit down and do a weekly plan. I look at my calendar and the appointments that I have. Um, I look at, okay, I have now four additional, I have three additional meetings, which is now taking five hours of my time mm-hmm. that I usually allocate to this. Mm-hmm. What am I going to do about it? Mm-hmm. How am I reclaiming it? How am I shifting things? 
And so that is what I do. I actually write it out. Okay, for this week, I do this. I will try to, okay, be mindful of this. Okay, you have this presentation in California in three weeks, but now you have six hours of meeting this week. So when will you get to that? Well, not this week. I will get to it next week, which means the next week I'm canceling this. Yep. So kind of a mind, I'm trying to get in control of my calendar before other things get in control of my calendar. So, so that is why... You need to have a calendar that, that you trust where everything is, is in there, all appointments, all of that. So that's happening during a weekly planning. I connect to my values. I think about, okay, this is, this is my semester plan. How can I move the needle? Well, I'm, I'm three weeks behind this. I was supposed to write 2,000 words. I'm now at 200 words. So, so what's you're, gonna, that I, specific. you're that very specific. Very specific. Very, like someone said, you know, like what I've seen with people, be, be, uh, uh, be creative uh, as an artist, but in planning, be as an accountant, right? Yeah. Be very, very specific how you do. creative people are, have these two elements, very specific, because I know I have this amount of time. And so that is on a weekly basis. It takes me an hour. I connect with my values. I came, Alyssa, you know, this thing, you know, I'm saying that this matters to me. But man, I am, I've been acting in such a way. Mm -hmm, so can mm -hmm, I be a bit mindful? Mm -hmm. Lord, help me. I want to spend more time during my Bible studies, really focusing on, on this aspect and praying yeah. to God. So it's a spiritual, all of these aspects sure. together. And so, then, and then, on, but, yeah. But, but wait, wait, on, as, as a psychological question, so to say. Yes. So you're so strongly organizing your life. I mean, even with the word counts that you need to achieve by a set, uh, set date. So you seem to operate under a lot of deadlines, so to say, self-set deadlines. My yes. question is, does that not make you often get a sense of failure? Or are you so well conducted that you usually meet your deadlines? I, I mean, my, exper my experience, I usually don't meet my deadlines. That per per perhaps right. I'm, just, uh, <laughs> I'm just revealing my immaturity here. But right. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a very optimistic person, more optimistic than life is, right? So, and, and so I, I, I don't set deadlines. And we'll talk about my way of organizing my life uh, right. in the next session. But my, my question really is, how do you prevent the deadlines that you might not be able to achieve always at the set time? to actually create some toxic energy that uh, suppresses your, your performance? I think one has to be, we, first of all, there are a couple of f factors here. We are usually completely, usually mistaken how, how much time something takes, right? We are overestimating our ability. And so what I do then is I actually examine that and take note. Hey, Ante, you said that writing a 25-page article for AUSS, which is about 8,000 words or so, that you will do it, but instead of two months, it took you five months. Why? Why? Or perhaps I'm just a slow writer, which then means, okay, since it takes me f five months, it means I'm not going to commit to other projects anymore in the future. Mm. But even if I then have a longer period, I know still it, it takes um, 8,000 words. And, and you see, the planning is because if I don't do it, then when I come four months, three, four weeks before the deadline, everything goes awry. Now I'm going to bed at 12 o'clock instead of when I wanted to go, everything, I don't exercise. All this idea of living what I want to pursue of fixed productivity will completely fall to pieces because now I've pushed everything and, and I don't want to live that way. Yeah. And that is, I became sick and tired of 
having all of this order, exercising, doing this, time for family, and then suddenly, you know, I'm eating junk, getting to bed at one o'clock, not exercising. That's not the way to live. For me, that's not the way to live. Yeah. So in order to prevent that, I have to, I have to be realistic. I have, I know how much I, I already know in a very busy semester, how many words per week I can generally write. And if I don't succeed, doesn't matter. I don't have guilt. I learn from that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I adjust things. Mm -hmm. I include more buffers. So let's say, okay, for one week in my planning, I will just not, I'm not counting any words. It's just a catch up week. So you develop this awareness yeah. of what is realistic, what is not. So then your emotional, so just, yeah. So your, your emotional response to failure is basically curiosity, right? Okay, why curiosity after exactly after action report, why am I being unrealistic? And, and next time then I know, okay, Ante, you, you said you would do this, this, this. Oh no, in the fall semester, I'm teaching four courses. Don't take any extra appointments and don't, don't take any projects with a deadline in the fall semester. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you take something, a paper that needs to be done, you better be done by September. And then you can tweak it a little bit and improve it because it's, I'm too busy to do new things. And yeah. in the, so that's how I, so try to be mindful about how much I can do and then have sufficient that it kind of pushes me along, but not that it's kind of crushing where it induces guilt. I understand. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. if life were a battle and we were you know, put into life as enemies of each other, I, I, I don't want to meet you. You, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you're a machine. Uh, I, I don't know how you, well, can I just, add, can yeah. I just add another layer, which is actually the very important one here. Yeah. And that is, that is what basically that needs to happen in this planning, right, on these different scales, is that this planning itself has its, its kind of uh, three elements. And one element, which for me is very important, which I learned from David Allen, uh, he wrote an important book on productivity, is that it's very important for my mind to capture anything that is in my mind. Mm -hmm. Any mm -hmm. obligation, any idea, any deadline, any do this, do that, I have to include this in the book. So I constantly have open a Google Doc where I just yeah. put things in. Yeah. I don't organize constantly. You tell me, hey, auntie, we need to meet then and then. Okay, I put it down. And then what I do, this capturing is absolutely essential because having things in unresolved things in your mind takes an unbelievable cognitive bandwidth and yeah. it's tiresome, it stresses you out. No, everything gets out, everything gets out. Then what I have in the evening when I finish always at a specific time because I follow fixed hour productivity, sure, sure. <laughs> I, 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 I then use these elements and then what I'm using basically is that I then organize it and I use Trello yeah. boards. Okay, yeah, yeah, and, Trello. Yeah. And I have them for teaching, for writing, for family, and then I put them in there and I put them under long-term or like focused, which means they had to be planned for this week and then I organize it then. So I put everything in there. So from my, my and then what I do usually, and then comes either in the evening or usually in the morning after my devotional time. Then what I do, I look at this and I do the time block planning for the day, right? From eight to 10, this is going to happen. From uh, 10 to 12, this, okay, I need some time for checking news. I don't want to do it when I'm when I'm doing other things, I don't believe in context switching. I don't believe in all of that. I believe in batching of tasks. Tasks. So let's say to 12 to 12.30, okay, mm -hmm. I, it's my shallow time. I will check news and all of this. Mm -hmm. So I'm claiming every minute of my work week is claimed for something. Everything. Yeah. Everything is claimed based on, 
on my calendar, on my schedule that I have in advance that I've already in my Excel, which then get, kind of gets messed up because I have meetings. So in real time, okay, man, I just, you know, the dean is calling me now and wants to see me and I have planned this. No problem. Just readjust those okay. blocks. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how it works. So that's how I daily, weekly, monthly planning that is that is for me extremely important. So that might be another topic of a conversation, namely the skill of flexibility. So if you're so well organized and at the same time recognize that things happen in life that uh, yes. are both urgent and important, right? Um, yes. How, how, do you, um, how, how do you adapt to these situations? So I, I see we're coming to the end of the conversation. I would love to actually listen more to you and, and get more practical advice or insights of what has worked well for you. Obviously, you have mm -hmm. mentioned already some apps like Trello that you're using. I'm curious about other things that you might be using as, as technologies to master your, you know, your semester or your daily life. Uh, I Everybody knows that you're also a tech nerd, nerd in, in a sense. You're a tinkerer of, of some some of technology, right? Um, you um, you're fascinated, perhaps through your father's genes or so, uh, by uh, engineering. Um, so, are if I can just say, I just have to say that it's very important because not a week passes that they don't learn something new. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's always tweaking, it's always so, it's something that we always kind of improve as we do these things. And I think that element that you're mentioning, like this constant improvement, this constant tinkering, that's something that adds also joy and meaning in life. It's just oh, this yeah. constant curiosity, this, this constant yes. being uh, drawn into a certain type of attention be because you haven't thought about exactly. it, because you see a possibility, you see exactly. a, a little game that you haven't uh, yet played. Exactly. Yeah, oh, I have this new trick with pizza. I have this new trick with this. You know, it's in everything in life. We find satisfaction at coming closer to perfection, kind of this I, I, getting better at something. I think it's very important yeah. in, in the way we do this. Well, I mean, Ante, sorry, time is over. So we went in media race and now we need to ex media race, right? Uh, <laughs> we need to get out, out of here. Um, I'm, I'm impressed, really. I, I feel like I have to learn so much, at least some of it will work nicely and will improve my own life if I would uh, integrate this. I'm obviously, I'm a different person. I'm, I'm living much more on, on intuitions. We'll, we'll speak about that at, um, in, in our next episode. But some of the skills and this, um, uh, principles by which you organize your life, they are universal in, in, in a sense. They need to be respected by, by anybody and then implemented in, in an individualized form, obviously. So thanks so much for sharing some of the things and, and helping me to, uh, yeah, tinker, uh, tinker yeah. On, on, on my own. Uh, uh, with with the toolbox, then that it I was have. my pleasure. It was my pleasure. Yeah. But uh, perhaps we we can leave uh, the audience or those who who are listening in to this and are impressed by your way of organizing your life to Ashlus Agamemnon. Uh, you know, this this great uh, Greek poet has put a line, a beautiful line that Sue uh, that Sue speaks into his his work about learning it uh, it's something that that pulls many chords in in my life but it has something to do with what you mentioned and it's cruel so any performance enhancement for the sake of living a more valuable life uh, right not not for becoming a slave of the industry 
needs to exactly. start somewhere in a catastrophe. Uh, hmm. there, there, is no, there is no learning and improvement without suffering. Uh, so to say, suffering is an important element in, in this. And you have shared some of it, uh, on, uh, that, that, uh, some of the suffering that you had to, to experience in your life. So here goes, here goes Ashlos uh, Agamemnon. Um, so he says, he, that is Zeus, leads mortals to understand that knowledge comes through suffering. <laughs> he has established this as a law. Wisdom comes unwillingly. It is a violent gift, I suppose, from the gods on the awesome rowing bench. So oh. I'm thinking of this when I listen to you. <laughs> this is amazing. Oh. Thank you, Ante, this for this is conversation. This is beautiful. Thank you. And I am looking forward to learn from you and to learn how Oliver is able to do all these things. You know, you are, you're almost like a friend I had when I was young who was like better in everything that I was. He was a better chess player, better water pool player, better student, and you are better almost uh, virtually in everything that I do. So I want to learn how I can become more like Oliver, and it's going to be an excellent conversation next time. Well, let's see. Let's see. <laughs> Have a good night. Yeah. Have a good night. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.